Hey, murder lovers, this is Mackenzie. And this is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Hey, everyone. All right, everyone. So this is one that I am doing today. And it centers on a case that happened here in Oregon. See, I wasn't raised in Oregon, so this is not something that I knew anything about. But for those that were raised here in Oregon, it's something that rings bells as soon as you say one of the victim's names or the person who was eventually convicted of this. So this is the case of Ward Weaver III. Oh my gosh, I was totally (laughs) going to do this one. I literally like sat down to do this one this week. Oh shit! I should. We should maybe should talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad you're doing it. So I've had I, a lot of people requesting it. This is, and this is exactly how this came about. I was talking about you know the podcast with a couple of coworkers, and one of my friends, Brent, put me onto this. Said, "Hey, you know, have you thought about doing the Ward Weaver case?" And I was like, "What are you talking about?" It took one Google search and I was hooked. Mm-hmm. So I remember this vividly. And when I was telling Kara that I was going to do this, she goes, oh, the Gaddis murders? I was like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's something that has notoriety here in, in Oregon. And without giving away our location, it happened really close to where we're at right now. What's really crazy about this case is that it's not only about him, Ward Weaver III wasn't the only one who has been in trouble with the law. I'll start a little bit with Ward Weaver Sr. So Ward's granddad. There's reports that he was abusive to his wife and to his children. Although he was never convicted of anything there's just reports that in the family he was always just an abusive person right that leads us to ward weaver the second so junior ward's dad i can't tell you ward weaver's story without telling you his dad's story so for this one i found the whole case brief about what he did ward jr was convicted in 1984 in California for the first-degree murders of Robert Radford and Barbara Levoy. So his dad was a long-haul truck driver, and after having some trouble at home and also had problems with drugs, he would stay up for days at a time. At the point that he committed this crime, he had been up allegedly for about a week. No sleep, just doing long hauls across the country. Or up and down California to Washington and back, at least. So Robert Radford was 18 years old at the time. He had just finished his basic training in the Air Force in Colorado. While he was there, he had met the 23-year-old Barbara Levoy. When Radford completed his training, they traveled to his home in Edmonds, Washington, and Levoy went with him to meet his parents. The couple then drove south and were in Pinedale, California, which is near Fresno, to meet Radford's grandmother. So he was introducing everyone to potentially, you know, the woman he was going to marry. Ultimately, they wanted to go to Las Vegas. He was going to go report for his first tour at 
Nellis Air Force. So Radford and Leboy arrived in Pinedale in the afternoon of February 5th, 1981, and visited Radford's grandmother. They left Pinedale around 7 p.m. the same day. Unfortunately, their car broke down. There was someone who stopped and tried to help them, and this person is James Powell. He saw the young woman in the car, so Barbara. He offered them a ride back to Tehapachi, but Radford declined because it was in the opposite direction that he was traveling from. Mm-hmm. So Powell left. After that, Ward Jr. stopped and offered to help them, offered to give them a ride back towards his house since he was going towards Oroville. So when he pulled over and saw the couple, he noticed how attractive Barbara was and became sexually aroused. The male voice in his head started saying he should have sex with her, and the good voice was telling him to leave the girl alone. The male voice, because he had a male and a female voice in his head, the male voice assured him that he would not get in trouble if he raped Levoy, and he testified he just couldn't go against the bad voice in his head. He started giving them a ride, and he put Radford in the back of the truck, and Levoy was in the cabin with him. And eventually, he pulled over for one reason or another and went back to the back of the truck, told Leboy he was doing something in the back and he was going to adjust the load on the truck and took out a cheater pipe, which I found out is a pipe that long-haul truck drivers use to tighten the straps on things while Mm -hmm. they're holding the load. He used this to beat Radford. He says that he didn't think he was going to kill him. He did not want to kill him. But later we'll find out that the injuries are so severe, there's no way that the intent wasn't to kill. Then he left Radford on the side of the truck, on the side of the road. And then he went back into the cabin and he proceeded to rape Leboy. And then he continued driving. There was a second rape. And we've seen this happen in other cases. He was driving along. When he was in Oakland, a California Highway Patrol officer pulled him over. But Leboy complied with Ward's instructions and did not call out to the officer or try to escape. After driving to Oakland, Ward drove to his home in Oroville. Right before that, he had stopped to drop off the load that he had in his truck. He was there for 45 minutes and she stood there quietly and it's believed that she was just in such a state of shock that she couldn't do anything. Right. He told Leboy that he was going to let her go and so he took her out and tied her up to a tree underneath a bridge and he said that he planned on driving back to her the next day and driving her out to Southern California where he would be releasing her in the Los Angeles warehouse district. He bound her with electrician's tape, but when he tried to gag her with some fabric diapers, she struggled and bit on his thumb. This is the moment that set him off. This pissed him off so bad because she would not let go that this is when he first hit her And he realized she was slumped over, and then he realized that she was dead. He says that he never intended to kill her, even when she had bit him. 
The male voice in his head told him to get rid of the evidence. So the next morning, on February 7th, 1981, people started seeing the abrasion on his hand because she bit so hard. And he had a couple stories on this. He told one set of people that it was almost bitten off by another trucker. Why would another trucker bite him? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. None of this makes sense. So eventually, he took her to his house, and he dug a hole. He buried her in his backyard. So he did this, putting the body into the ground, all while his children were home. Ward exhumed her body again and moved it to a deeper grave elsewhere in the yard. He then built a wooden platform over her grave so his wife could stand on it while she was doing her laundry and wouldn't get her feet wet. So eventually they caught on to him. They found the body in his backyard. He was convicted for two murders. Mm-hmm. And he is currently serving back-to-back prison sentence in California. We're going to start talking now about Ward Weaver. And so his story of crime goes way back as well. So in 1986, Ward Weaver was already a father. And on Father's Day of 1986, he was having a really rough day. His kids had just come back to him and his wife from being in foster care. So they had been taken away from them. There's reports that he didn't receive any Father's Day presents that year. So he went out drinking Mm -hmm. and he had drugs. He had like six shots. He had a couple drinks. So he had a lot in him and he was out of it. Him and his wife were staying with Ordana family and everything was good and well up until that point. The Oranda's, Oranda girls, Jennifer Ordana and Jocelyn Ordana, who were 16 and 14, went to pick him up and give him a ride from the bar on that Father's Day to bring him back to their house. Mm-hmm. As they were driving back home, he needed to pee. So they pulled over on the side of the road for him. He was relieving himself, and out of completely nowhere, there was no reason for this, at least that I can find, he opened up the passenger door where Jocelyn was sitting, and with a concrete block, mm-hmm. hit her upside the head. Jeez. And then tried to rape Jennifer. So, because of this incident... He served some time in jail. After he finished that sentence, this is when they moved to Oregon. He is abusive to his wife, to his children. She finally files for divorce when he starts cheating on her with another woman, who he eventually ends up getting married with as well. They had a house here in Oregon City, and there was an apartment complex nearby. And a lot of the kids also went to the same school as his daughter, Mallory. His house was at the top of a hill on the same road that you take to go to the apartments. And Mallory was well-liked. Her and the two victims were all in a dance team together. So they always hung out at Mallory's house, at Ward Weaver's house. There's always sleepovers at the house. And he eventually brags about this. He said that... You couldn't walk anywhere in the house without stepping on a body. 
I know. Which, if you think about it now, in hindsight, what he says is just fucking creepy. Leading up to this point, Ashley Pond reportedly had a less-than-ideal home life. So Ashley spent a lot of her time at Mallory's house, hanging out, just watching movies, eating. She eventually moved into the house with Mallory for a whole summer because she was having such a bad home life. And during this... Say what? I didn't realize that part. And during her time there, Ward was lavishing her with gifts and attention. At this point, she is, I believe, 14. Towards the end of that summer that she was living with them, they went on a road trip to California. And it's alleged that during this road trip, Ward made an advance at Ashley. Now, with that said, Ashley came home and was like, fuck this, I'm out. Mm-hmm. I'd rather go live with my with my family again. And she did. She moved back out, and she moved back in with her family. And she went and told a school counselor about advances that Ward had made. This is around Labor Day, and the person who called in and reported the alleged crime didn't get through to Oregon City Police because of the weekend, because it's not a 911 call. It's not an emergency, yeah. So it got routed to Clackamas County, and because of the long weekend and because one agency thought that the other was doing it, there was a miscommunication there, so it was never dealt with timely. Got it. So that was 2001. On the morning of January 9th, 2002, Ashley Pond left for school and was never seen again. Her school bus stop was right down the road. I did read the transcripts of her mom calling in to 911. And her mom called in the same day. And she said that she had woken her up for school and at first thought that she was running late, but then realized that she wasn't. So she went back to sleep thinking she's going to make the bus just fine. No one needs to give her a ride into school. Unfortunately, she didn't have an exact memory of what she was wearing. She had a vague idea. She knew that she would she would be wearing a hoodie. She was wearing jeans and some white sneakers. Sorry, that's Mila. It's <laughs> her mascot. Her contribution. She knew a little bit about what she was wearing, and she called right after school time was over and she was supposed to be home. She got reports that she hadn't showed up for dance practice that evening either. There was no eyewitnesses. There was no leads to follow at that point. Because of the tumultuous past that they had and, and, you know, less than ideal home life, they thought that she was a runaway at first. So that's what they treated it as uh, at the beginning for Ashley Pond. I'm sorry, if I was Ashley's mom, though, if my daughter had just accused someone of rape... Yeah, that seems pretty obvious. Less than four or five months ago, mm-hmm. I'd be like, no, you've got to go knock on this door and talk to him. Yep. Less than two months later, on March 8th, Miranda Gaddis 
disappears the exact same way at the exact same time that Ashley had, which was on her way to the bus stop to go to school. And again, this was something that was unusual, obviously. What started the ball rolling on there being a lot more police involvement, and this is where the FBI got involved as well, is because they put a couple of things together right off the bat. It's not just two random girls that disappeared. These two girls have a connection. And they say, you know, these girls are on the same dance team. They're on, they disappeared going to the same bus stop and completely without a trace, no witnesses. So rumors start flying in the neighborhood of who may have done this. And a lot of people are pointing fingers at Ward Weaver and they're saying, you guys need to check out this guy. People in the neighborhood start appearing on interviews in local media saying, this guy is sketchy. Go take a look at him. Go ask him questions. But what that did, Ward actually invited the news stations into his house with open arms. Of course. In true psychopath fashion. He didn't just do interviews, let's say, at the door or if they caught him, you know, coming in. He actually did sit-in interviews at his house. He walked him around his house. He showed around everything. And one of the interviews, well, him walking around the house explaining how, where the girls slept during the sleepovers and how fun his house was. And eventually, there's a couple shots which are now so frightening to see. There's a shot of him standing in his kitchen by a deep freezer with his hand on it, just leaning on it, casual. And it's alleged that this is maybe where he kept the body of Miranda. There's a very high chance that it was there during that interview. Hmm. And then there's also another shot, and they're just walking and talking leisurely of him in his backyard walking over a slab of concrete. Eventually, there's... An interview that he does with a reporter, I believe his name is Mr. Redder, that sets off everything because he just seems so casual about this, but there's also things that he's talking about that just kind of implicates him. There's just this big media attention on him, and eventually that gets the FBI involved and they start honing in on him. So as he feels all this pressure coming in on him and everyone's closing in on him, everyone's asking him for more interviews, not just the media, but the police. And they did two polygraph tests on him that he failed. And we know that's not 100%. Right, they don't hold up in court. But he knows they're closing in on him. Yeah. So he starts preparing to leave town. He wants to bolt. He wa- He's packed up everything, everything. His son at the time, Francis, was living with him. He was in the house along with his 19-year-old girlfriend at the time. They were on the same age. She was in the shower. They had just finished the whole day helping him pack his car because he was going to leave. He just said he wanted to leave everything behind, that he was done of getting this all, all this attention and done getting accused of all this that he says he didn't do and he has one of these breaks again there's no reason behind it there's no history of him and Francis' girlfriend having a bad history but he goes into the shower while she's showering and tries to rape her yeah i know completely out of nowhere yeah so 
This badass is spry and quick thinking. She grabs the shower curtain on her way out. She's able to get away from him. She runs out onto the street. She stops a car that's passing by and they get and she gets them to call 911. They get there so fast that he's just down the street. Ward got in his car and tried leaving. So they caught him right down the street from his house. And for some reason, there was a helicopter in the area. And they there's footage of him getting pulled over and getting put into the patrol car. So up until this point, they had no probable cause to mm-hmm. actually question him or do a search warrant on his house for Miranda and Ashley. Mm-hmm. But it was this set of events that gave them that reason, and a search warrant was granted. August 24th, and in a shed he had in his backyard, there was a box to a microwave. And this is where they found Miranda Gaddis. She was in a fetal position. Her arms were around her legs. It's a tiny box. Yeah, I was going to say for a microwave. Like, she really had to be folded up in there, you would think. Yeah. They had started working on the slab of concrete the first day, but it wasn't until the next day when... Because they couldn't just lift it mm-hmm. nilly-willy. Right. They had to sift through everything, make sure they weren't missing anything. They found Ashley's body in a 55-gallon drum underneath the newly laid concrete slab. And something very interesting was that before, you know, they found the girls and before he was ready to bolt town, actually right after the girls disappeared, Ward's sister was over at his house and he had all the materials with him to lay the concrete slab. Mm -hmm. And she remembers telling him, hey, don't you think it's a little fucking weird that these girls go missing and you're going to lay down some new concrete slab like our father did? Yep. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. They know it's not me. It's not me. They got nothing on me. They ain't going to get me. They have nothing on me. Oh, oh, sweet, stupid Ward. (laughs) Also, don't name your kids Ward. (laughs) Yeah, we've had enough of the Ward Weavers. (laughs) But... Seriously, his sister was like, hey, don't you think it's really fucking suspicious that after kids go missing, you're going to do the right. same thing our dad did? When his dad did the murders, he was three, four years old mm-hmm. at the time. So he didn't really grow up with a dad, but it was, I guess, the turning point when he really changed his personality and just the way that he acted towards women and people in general was after he had gone and visited his dad when he was older. It was after talking to his convicted murderer dad that something must have snapped or something must have changed. So that was in late August that they found both of the bodies of the girls. There's images, family, friends, right in that window of when they arrested him for the attempted rape to when they got the search warrant, those, you know, those two weeks, that they were putting signs, big, huge cardboard signs in front of his house saying, dig it up, dig it up, dig it up. Yeah. I remember when that happened. Like, they had helicopters that were flying over his property, and they were literally, like, live streaming it to the news stations as they were digging it up and recovering the bodies. It was the craziest thing ever. I can remember watching it on TV as they pulled the bodies out. Oh, that's scary. Yeah. Like, they didn't... Obviously, they can't show a dead body Mm -hmm. on the news, um, but... 
everything else was streamed. Like you, I saw everything. It was That's weird. crazy. Yeah, it's such a vivid memory for me. That That's whole crazy. thing. And because his house was on a hill, I guess you can see in the in the videos that crowds upon crowds of people mm-hmm. were outside the house because they they had a good vantage point at what the police was doing. Yeah. So they were out there waiting to see what they could see. And you're right. There's images of them pulling out the stretchers yeah. with, of course, body bags on them. But yeah. while he was still arrested and just in custody, he was still doing interviews with the news and talking to them and saying, I'm not guilty. I don't know why they think they got me on for this. This is not something that I did. And this is just classic stuff that someone does, right? right? We've talked about this before, that they try and get ahead of it. They try to make everything seem better. But in reality, they're just showing us this side of... Right. Who they really are. Right. Either they're not able to process the emotions that are behind it. Literally just keep your mouth shut. Right. But also keep talking because we <laughs> want to hear it. And he said he was hearing voices and he just started acting strange while he was in custody. Mm-hmm. He started stuffing toilet paper in his ears and not just a little bit just to plug up the noise. No, it got in so deep enough that he had to be hospitalized to take it out. Sheesh. Yeah. That sounds painful. It prompted his lawyers to ask for a psych evaluation to be Mm -hmm. performed to see if he was even, you know, mentally prepared to stand trial. And eventually the court said, no, you're okay. You're you're okay to stand trial. So in September 2004, he pleaded guilty to both of the murders. And this was because allegedly his daughter, Mallory, gave him a note through his lawyers saying, daddy, make it stop. Because he didn't want to have, you know, his name, the trial go through the whole news thing. And like you said, it sounds like it's something that kept the spotlight for a while. Yeah. So after he read that note for Mallory, that's what made him plead guilty because he didn't want to drag it out anymore. Yeah. And because he took the plea bargain, that avoided him getting the death penalty. Right. So he's currently serving two life sentences without parole. Also in 2004, to continue the Weaver saga, his stepson Francis Mm -hmm. was arrested and charged with murder after robbing and killing a drug dealer, allegedly, in Camby, Oregon. Now, Francis wasn't the man who pulled the trigger. He was allegedly involved in everything that led up to that. Allegedly, they wanted to steal 15 pounds of marijuana, and they wanted to resell it themselves. Although he wasn't the gunman, because he was so involved in this, he was also sentenced to life. Right. A lot happens in that family. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting with these ones where it trickles down through the generations and just continues to, the cycle just continues to perpetuate itself throughout the different... And it makes you think, is it, you know, nature... Or nurture at this point. I literally said that to somebody the other day. They, My friend texted me about this, about doing this particular one. And I said that this was a really good argument for nature versus nurture. Because yeah. 
you could argue both sides. Right. Using this one example. Ward was three when his Mm -hmm. dad did everything. Yeah. Actually, to answer a little bit of the why, Mariah, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. It's M-I-R-I-A-H. Mariah. Mariah. So Mariah, Miranda's sister, younger sister, was nine at the time that all this happened. Mm -hmm. And just like most of us want to know why, because he never spoke out about this in public. Because, of course, up until him pleading guilty, he was saying he was innocent. So he never gave anyone a why. Mariah, eventually, when she got older, she started corresponding with him while he was in jail. Then wanted to ask him exactly that. Why did you do this? Why did you kill my sister? And after corresponding with him, she eventually went down and visited him, I believe, twice. And although it might not have been a full answer, she got an answer. And so as far as Ashley goes... There's no real answer. But for her sister Miranda, he said that on the day that Miranda was kidnapped or disappeared, he was paranoid because he was moving stuff around to do with Ashley, like moving the materials around that he was using to to hide her body, and he thought that she saw him. So then he did the most fucked up thing. He went up to Miranda when she was walking towards the bus stop and he said to her that Ashley was alive, that she was back at his house and that she was just scared and wanted to go back to her family and didn't know how to do that. And she wanted a friend there with her and he thought that Miranda going over would help Ashley return to her family. What a con. Yeah. So he played with this girl's feelings of, oh my God, my friend's Loyalty alive. Loyalty to her friend, yeah. And, and kidnapped her and eventually, you know, haphazardly put her in, in that microwave box. Because the bodies were so de- decomposed and, you know, they were under such bad conditions, the method of death is not known. But one can only assume it was traumatic, yeah. unfortunately. So, yeah, that's the case of the Weavers, the Weaver clan. I don't know what to call them. Just all... I have no idea either. Yeah. Thank you for listening to that. Yeah. If you guys have anything else that you'd like to hear, you know the drill. Follow us on Instagram at A Stranger Danger Podcast. You can email us at a stranger danger podcast at gmail.com and Facebook. Let me see if I can get it. Is stranger danger colon a true crime podcast. Holla. <laughs> and again, thank you for the iTunes reviews. If you're listening to this on iTunes and you haven't reviewed, please do it. Yeah, we'd appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, (laughs) bye-bye.